Good day and welcome to Fawcett v. Fildebrandt. I'm Derek Fildebrandt, publisher of the Western Standard, and this is the very first episode, our first, well, I guess the borrow term from our first guest, Jen Gerson, experimental episode to see how well it goes. Uh, I'm going to be joined by my regular co-host, Max Fawcett, who is the lead columnist for Canada's National Observer. Uh, this began when um, first Max invited me on his show, Maxed Out, and uh, we were expected to disagree and be assholes to one another, and it had a surprisingly civil and fruitful conversation. And I reciprocated, hoping that maybe I'd get a rise out of him, and I failed as well. Uh, coming at things from different angles, but uh, unfortunately managing to find more common ground than we had hoped. But uh, we put our heads together and thought, you know, kind of reminisced about the old firing line show that, uh, no, not firing line, crossfire that, uh, that CNN had on. And we thought that, well, Canada and the West uh, could use something like that. So that's what we're doing here today with our first episode of Fawcett versus Fildebrandt. Um, our first show is going to deal, we're going to deal with one big question, which will obviously have a lot of smaller questions as a part of it. Our first question on our first episode is, can and should Canada's legacy media be saved. Uh, before we get into that, though, I'm going to hand it over to my co-host, Max Fawcett of Canada's National Observer. Thank you, Derek. Um, pleasure to be here. Um, this is going to be interesting. See if we can find a way to disagree uh, a little more uh, loudly than perhaps we have in the past. But uh, we have someone here, I think, that both of us have probably disagreed with on more than one occasion. Um, Jen Gerson, uh, needs no introduction, but I will give her one anyways. Uh, don't worry, don't look scared. Um, she is a, I would say, kind of perfect blend of new media and old media. So Jen got her start in the mainstream media, uh, working for the Calgary Herald, working for Post Media, um, and still keeps a toe in those waters to this day as uh What's the official? You're a part-time columnist with no, the Globe and Mail. Contributing columnist with Con the Globe and Mail. Contributing columnist Show up with the at Globe the CBC and Mail. On occasion, when they when they forget that they don't like me anymore. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, um, but she is the co-founder of the Line, which is, I think, one of the most successful and encouraging startups in the new media space in our country. Um, sort of a centrist, center-right perspective, but brings on a lot of really smart, interesting voices, and is making a go of things uh, financially. Is doing well and. Uh, you know, I think for anyone who says, if we just let the old ones go away, the new ones will flourish, they are, they are thinking of the line uh, in a lot of respects there. So uh, it is a pleasure to have Jen on. Well, they, uh, they can't get rid of me. I mean, you're stuck with me in some form or another. I'm like a barnacle in the entire industry. <laughs> you're the cockroach of the media. Exactly. I'll die here. It's, it's my destiny. Well, it's good to have you on. Thank you. I'm instantly regretting my life decisions and wondering what I got myself into, but let's give it a shot. All right. Well, I guess we'll just start with the big question, and I'm sure you're going to have a quippy, lippy answer for it, but can and should Canada's legacy media be saved? Nope. Next. <laughs> Podcast over. I expected <laughs> expected a hard no, uh, but maybe, maybe elaborate a bit. Well, what do you mean by saved? Saved by whom and under what terms? Well, I think it's very clear they, they're not capable of saving themselves. They've had a lot of time to do it. They can't. I, I suppose the answer would then be, can the state, can, the can st and should can, the state. Can and should the state, no. <laughs> like, I don't know what to say. Like, if, if we are dealing with, we're dealing with private 
for-profit corporations um, that have had every opportunity to make the transition to a digital first space and have demonstrated over the course of what 30 years that they are incapable of doing it in, in, a, in a financially sustainable manner. Why should the state save them? I mean, make the argument for me. Make the argument for why well, the state ought to ought to save them. Just for devils, just devils ought to argue. So Let's play with that idea. Making, so making Derek make this argument, by the way, is hilarious. Oh, so yeah, this no, is. I'm, I'm, I'm here to. I'm here to just push everyone's buttons. Make, this is. Just, throw it out there. Throw it out there. This is a. This was an interesting bit of jujitsu uh, okay. you have done. Yeah. Making me make the argument. <laughs> this was from uh, Sunday's Toronto Star. Um, or I'll paraphrase. They have a picture of uh, Heritage Minister, Minister Pablo Rodriguez up there. And they more or less frame it as, oh, this is the front page above the masthead. They said, yeah, along the lines of, uh, you know, will uh, Pablo Rodriguez defeat uh, Meta and Google and save the news industry in Canada? So right, this- off, right off the bat, just just great, independent, fair, detached journalism. I mean, while they're at it, why didn't they just put, his, like, put him on a pedestal, put a little frame around his face? Do a little smiley face and some heart emojis around too. That's exactly that's exactly the sort of mentality you want to have as a national. Newspaper. And I'm sure they put a financial. I, I I can't confirm. I haven't looked into it. I don't have the print version. But twenty bucks says they probably didn't put a disclosure on there. But their wild conflict of interest of hundreds of millions of dollars <laughs> yeah. in covering that story. Can this really nice, awesome minister save us? Don't, don't you love this? Will guy? he save democracy? Will he okay. save democracy? So, so I'll, I'll try to frame it the way these guys do. It's that they're not saying we need to go away, the independents need to go away, but they're saying that we're not really adding to the conversation that legacy media is the guardian of reliable and factual journalism, and without these institutions in particular... Reliable, factual journalism goes away. Yeah, because like I'm and then therefore democracy because, itself. Because legacy media in the last five, ten years, and five years in particular, has just covered itself with glory in terms of being the, the bastions of reliable, you know, public service journalism, with, with with exceptions that I will I can certainly happily name if you like. What you have is a legacy media that's done ab that has done nothing but essentially cut itself down to nothing and 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 prove itself prove itself less and less competent and capable of just marshalling the resources required to 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 cover the, the basic news in a, in a daily way. We've seen we've seen the legacy media pull out of beats pull out of pull, sorry fire people on mass we've seen them pull out of jurisdictions so like what how much when do we take when do we talk about saving sort of things like post media or Torstar or ctv or things like that what, what do we mean here are we talking about keeping them technically in their current state where in post media's case what you have is government money going to overwhelmingly service american batched hedges debt plays or are you talking about saving them in a way that you're restoring them to what they looked like five years ago, ten years ago? Why stop there? Why not try and fund them to the extent that they look like they like the newsrooms look like they did in the '80s or the '70s? Like, what, what, what are, what does it, what does saving mean in this context? Well, I think it's a fair question because, as you point out, um, sort of keeping them in their current like weekend at Bernie state yeah. is not really saving them. It no. is keeping them from not dying. Uh, because I think no government, or certainly this government, does not want that on their watch. Uh, and they especially don't want the Toronto Star dying on their watch. That, that has always, I think, been the understood quid pro quo, is that they're going to bail out post-media because they want to bail out the Toronto Star. And as they if, can't do one without the other. And, and they live in a, in a mindset 
from what 1999 where this this is actually some kind of fair exchange for the purposes of the Canadian public because if you bail out we bail out your left wing media organization yeah. we will bail out your right wing media organization and what other organization counts and what other factors matter in this conversation totally because they don't but there's but I think there's a le a legitimate concern around news gathering news dissemination reporting funding the things that are not easy um, so you know I talked about the line the line is a success the line does opinion and opinion is you know as you know it's lower cost lower barrier to entry and people want it people want opinions people don't necessarily want like a 10-part series on corruption within the schools or some sort of corporate malfeasance that takes work it's not sexy and I'm my concern and I think a lot of people's concern, maybe even the government, is that if we don't find a way to fund journalism, that will go away completely. So my, my response to this is that to some extent, what we're talking about are the aesthetic and class concerns of an of a, of a, um, overthrown priestly class. I mean, when you say stuff like, well, the people don't actually want the 10-part uh, series of corruption on their local school council or whatever, aren't you hearing a little bit of, but the plebes won't listen to the opera there? No, it's not the opera. Well, uh, but, but, but it is, because if you can't present or package your journalism in a way that an audience will find value in it, that's the issue, right? The, the issue isn't with saving the media. The issue isn't with government funding. The issue is with what you fear your audience will accept well, or what I, they're I willing to fund. It's the economics of it. Yeah, that, sure. Like, think of it through basic inputs and outputs, inputs of time, especially investigative work. So... You know, you'll get, uh, we've all been pitched and, hey, I've got the big story. And, you know, nine times out of ten, probably more, it's a quack. Yeah. And, and and he's got a conspiracy theory. But every once in a while, okay, maybe this one's got some merit. And so you give it to an editor who gives it to a reporter. And that reporter might follow this thing. And it could, if it's a big story, it could take weeks, maybe more. Mm -hmm. And there's a really good chance at the end of the day, there's a dead end. There's nothing you can publish. And so you've invested. Your mm -hmm. inputs are a lot of time, and a lot of, therefore, money. And you got nothing out of it, which is why it's easier and more economical to do opinion or short news of the day, latest crap yeah. going on. So that's Basically, why Basically, the, the thing is you actually need to have a media organization that's not just surviving paycheck to paycheck. You need a media organization that's thriving and bringing in enough money to be able to divert resources to potentially low cost outcomes, high, high reward, low cost outcomes. But I would say like to say there's no market value in that is wrong, because as we've seen, when there are certain investigative pieces or there are certain types of reported pieces, and when they hit, they're hugely profitable. They can be hugely lucrative. Well, like gl Global Mail covering China. Like, you know, that, that was the Global, China, Mail, exactly. Global Mail slash CTV's baby. They did that. Sure, and but then the other thing I would say is, um, you know, when Matt and I do spend money to send one of us to a thing to do on-the-ground reporting, that is some of the most lucrative stuff that we do because it brings in and generates subscriptions, like paid subscriptions from mm. an audience that suddenly is like, oh, you guys are more than, a, than an opinion outlet. You're doing stuff of value and I'm willing to support that. Mm -hmm. So there's a market argument for doing all that kind of stuff. But, mm. the, and, I wouldn't, and I wouldn't underestimate the market value for that. But getting away from the market, I do think that it's very possible that there are going to be types of um, uh, high risk, high reward um, journalism that costs a lot of money to produce and may or may not produce a return. And in uh, a market that is where newsrooms are much more pared down, they're newsrooms of 5, 10, 15 people, and where you have newsrooms and news organizations that just don't have the megatons of money that they did 20, 30 years ago, um, that becomes a harder harder thing to picture working, right? Mm -hmm. I, I do think there are private models that will make it work. But 
we don't know what those models are right now, and that's going to emerge over time. So I would say, yeah, there there is a, a place for the state to step in and address um, the uh, potential market failure here. I, I do think that's right. What do you think that could the, look the, like? The CDC. That's what it looks like. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the federal government is already hugely invested in Canadian journalism to the tune of the CBC, which gets a billion dollars a year in public funding. Like, if the CBC isn't well equipped to address the market failures that are going to emerge as a result of this terrible apocalypse that we're all about to go through, then what the hell is it good for? Okay, but if we, let's say there's a redefinition of the CBC's mandate. Sure. And they take all the programmatic tele television, scripted television, they take all the opinion out of it, and they just put all the money into reporting in communities that aren't well served, in local communities, doing the things that maybe uh, other people don't want to do. Is there going to be a consensus around that reporting and that it's acceptable, that it's of public interest, or is it just going to become yet another front in the culture war of like, well, we can't trust the reporting on XYZ because it comes from the dreaded CBC? Everything is going to become a front in the culture war, but the way that you best prevent becoming a, a, a front in the culture war is by preempting it and understanding that that's a risk and the CBC has to be able to address it. And this is why I've made the argument that a mandate review for the CBC is so crucial mm -hmm. because so much a significant portion of the population has so fundamentally lost trust in the CBC that it's not going to be able to serve its basic function under the current under the status quo. Yeah, I, I just agree. I just don't think it's there. I've made the same argument, and, and I think that the art that the mandate that you've described is pretty close to what I would what I would also agree with. But I would go a little bit further, and I would say I would like a CBC that does not see itself in competition with private media, because mm -hmm. otherwise, what you have is you've got a new imperial oil. You have a new essentially monopolistic journalistic exercise. But what I would like to see is a CBC that sees itself in service to its local journalism organizations and startups. So right. I would like to see, for example, all of the written content is maybe um, open license. So every, every media mm -hmm. organization yeah. can use it. All of its photos, open license. All of its videos, open license. I would like to see massive money put into the CBC archives. Mm -hmm. um, I'd like to see, um, uh, uh, for example, uh, I would just like to see a, a shift in mindset because right now I think the CBC sees its role as dictating to Canadians what Canadian values are. And I would like to see them shift that way of thinking into saying, no, our role is to serve Canadians. Well, and because, right? because there's this confusion over, I think, what they are, and they feel this sort of survival instinct fear of like, well, we got we to gotta get bigger or we're going to get smaller. Yeah. They go to the places where they should actively be backing away from. They yes. go to the advertising. They go yep. to the things that sell, so opinion, you know, what have you, whereas they should be going, oh, no, the private market is doing a very good job there. Yep. We'll go over here. We'll go over to the thing that is not sexy, is not attractive, but it serves a public interest. And what if you were to have like a CBC instead of in only major urban centers, more and more doing what CBC Calgary did, which is branching out to places like Lethbridge, totally. Medicine Hat, these sorts of low, low, and saying, hey, our job is to serve this um, uh, um, particular center. And maybe part of our job is going to be providing journalism training. Mm -hmm. Maybe our part of our job is going to be um, sharing what journal journalism values looks like. Maybe part of our job is going to be helping people to do um, media um, uh, editing. We're going to teach people how to use editing software. We're going to open up our facilities so mm. that local media organizations can come in and use broadcast facilities. They can use our, our podcast studios. We're going to see ourselves less as a competitor in the space and more like a public library. Like, a, like infrastructure, where infrastructure. we're, we're going to provide access awesome. to the tools of journalism yes, for exactly. community members so they can, they can make their own contributions. I would like to see the CBC understand that we're about to go through a media apocalypse. It's <laughs> going to last five to 20 years, and their role is to be the seed bank 
in the apocalypse. To the ark. The ark, the, pre the preservation of certain values and virtues that they can then help, that can be then used to help other private media organizations flourish and create their own um, um, for-profit and financially successful organizations. But is there any, okay, you know, one of the basic principles of capitalism is creative destruction, Ooh. that the existing firms and industries will often need to be destroyed for capital to be reallocated to the new. Mm -hmm. And that's, the federal government is very clearly doing everything in its power, humanly possible, to stop that yeah. from happening. Mm -hmm. um, I guess there's a couple scenarios we can look at, but the, based on the current scenario, we have media bailouts, we've got C-18, all of this in place. What do you think the emerging new media is going to look like if that status quo remains, let's say, you know, there's there's no alternative scenario where Polyev comes to power and blows all that up. They're just uh, Trudeau and his successors continue on there. And this is the regime and they continue to pile one thing on top of another. What's your sickly, prognostication of what sickly, it's going to look like? Sickly, incredibly and intensely dull. <laughs> um, absolutely unwilling to innovate and take risks. Uh, just a really awful place for... Uh, ambitious young journalists to work, you're going to see a huge brain drain because who wants to work in that kind of media environment? Like nobody. Um, and I just sort of think it's going to be a, a slow chipping away of independence over time, right? You're just going to see, you're just going to see a lot of these private media organizations fall further and further into whatever government it is. So I'm not even talking about an ideological government, but it's going to be just more inclined not to make waves with the existing government. Because why pick a fight if we don't have to? And well, you know, we don't really want to piss the wrong people off. Then, well, and like, it's not gonna, it's not gonna be an obvious like, oh, hey, we're going to become propagandists for the liberals overnight. Mm -hmm. It's just gonna be a slow, slow dulling, dulling of the entire media market. It's gonna get a little more boring, a little less controversial, a little less willing to push, a little less, and it's just gonna chip away over time. It's gonna get worse and worse. I, I think one of the things that is not commonly understood among the non-journalist class is how bad things already are. Yeah. I think people look at papers like the, the Herald or the Journal, or they look at the Toronto Star and they think, well, there must be like hundreds of journalists still working in there, you know, pursuing their craft. And I heard from yeah. someone who who is, you know, close to the journal, they're like, I think it was like fewer than five people are reporters there now. Mm -hmm. Like it, it is already there's dead. No, there's no there there anymore. Uh, it, it is just got more in like the newsroom on the other side of this wall than the then journal probably has. A, a lot of it is management. And, in, and then life support uh, is sort of what is sustaining things. So, you know, I, I think I'm supportive of the idea of taking it off the ventilator. I, my concern is just always, what do we lose when we do that? Because there was a really interesting podcast with Paul Wells, Andrew Coyne, David Hurley, um, and, oh God, her name escapes me. Um, she worked at Le Journal, CBC in- Chantel? Not Chantel, no, 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 no. Um, Oh God, this is going to go badly for me. But anyways, um, uh, and they were talking about the future of the media. What do we do? And they all sort of seem to say, like, oh, look at the New York Times. There's, you know, there's Figaro in France. Like, just let the market figure it out. Canada's, in English Canada, Quebec is a whole different story. But in Canada, English Canada, our media market is the hardest, I think, in the world in terms of what you have to do to build a, a new media company because we're competing with the Americans 
we don't have population scale. We don't have a geographic or, or cultural barrier that makes people, I need to get the news from somewhere because the people on the other side speak Welsh or they speak uh, French. And I just think if we, if we put our faith in the market, I think we are ignoring the fact that the market in Canada is unusually challenging. I'm, I'm not ignoring the market. I'm saying that's the argument for having the CBC. Mm, yeah. Right. Like if you have a non-challenging environment, uh, this, the logic for the CBC disappears. Yeah. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that when you say creative destruction, that's a really pretty term. It, it, it maybe underplays what destruction looks like and mm. how ugly that can I've never be. had anyone describe it as a pretty term. No, I but, think it's but, beautiful, I mean, but I mean, it's, it's, yeah, we're going to have a couple of really, really weird years. And we're going to see what the impacts in a country that is sparsely populated, very diverse in many different ways, including geographically and culturally, what happens when you know you lose a, a unified narrative that is that follows through a mainstream media conversation. When we lose that, and we are, we're losing it, um, that's going to get weird. And I think especially in, there in some, some small towns, underserved, underserviced or unserviced markets, things are going to get really weird. You know, I've heard stories of people going in through small towns in British Columbia and like the whole QAnon craze is the, is the predominant craze now. Like that is just overwhelmingly accepted in the, those, those small communities and cultures because they don't have access to great information or their, 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 their cultural milieu is such that they're getting their news on particular Facebook groups, right? Just, so, just yesterday, actually, I had, uh, without naming them, I had a small local community paper approach us about buying them out or doing uh, essentially share swap where they would come in as a little part of us. Um, but I mean, there was just an absolute no way to make that work. First of all, I could barely locate where they were on a map, but you know, it's local paper community. No one's paying for a paper subscription anymore. So you don't have that. And they're no longer have a monopoly on advertising that ended not with Facebook and Google, but with Kijiji. That was that was that a long Craigslist, time ago. Kijiji. Yeah. yeah, there's no way. And I, I I do think these these small ones, they're all gonna die. I don't well, I don't see a way out of it. But what but what potentially replaces them? What potentially replaces them are people from within these communities who decide to take up the role of serving their communities with information that's useful to their neighbors and their friends, mm -hmm. probably through. Um, uh, platforms like Substack, platforms like Facebook, and can these people make a living on a subscription-based model? Well, that's yes. the question. For, yeah, for of course they can, because you don't need a lot of money to make to. Sorry, you don't need a lot of subscribers to make money on a subscription model. Mm -hmm. if you're, even if you're in a town of what ten thousand people, and you have one hundred, maybe if you're lucky, up to two or, or a thousand of those people get paying you a small amount of money. And that's before you're looking at any advertised local advertising revenue. You have, you can potentially have a living in that if you're in a, if you're in a, if you're in a town where the, your cost of living is reasonable, right? So, is it going to be a newsroom of five people with a monopoly of advertising? No. But is it going to be maybe mom and pop kind of uh, operations that are providing a service to their community because they saw a vacuum and maybe were able to monetize that to a reasonable degree? I think that's a potential. Well, well, let's talk about places. the transition, though. You're talking about, you know, there's little communities in BC where everyone's kind of getting their news on QAnon. Mm. Uh, I think inevitably in the transition, there's going to be some, yeah. there's going to be some weird shit. Weird and shit. There's going to be stuff like that. Hundred percent. 
I think we'd probably come through all right on the other side. I mean, uh, I mean, people believe in all sorts of weird stuff in the 60s. And yep. they came out through and they're like, oh, that was weird. Let's get back to work. Um, as long as there's a penalty for the weirdness. I think that's... What do you mean a penalty for the weirdness? It, it, there used to be a social penalty if you were one of the if you were a person who was putting newsletters on cars windshields and and they said you know you had your worldview and you put oh, it there. How familiar were you with the sixties? Uh, pretty familiar. <laughs> pretty familiar. There, yeah. there wasn't a lot of social penalty for weirdness. Eventually, there was. Absolutely, there was. Well, eventually, it yeah. Was called the 80s. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I mean, that's what we're talking about. That's 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 the process, right? We're going to go through this experimental phase where people are going to well. The satanic panic, which is the subject of my book, happened in the 80s. People believe in all kinds of crazy shit. Mm -hmm. But yes, there is going to be this weird dis intermediation period. People are going to start to believe all kinds of alternative narrative theories. Um, and they will, in time, live or die on the value that they have to their community. That's, that's and yes, you, you can't, I don't see how you practically punish people for buying into QAnon. Uh, you don't practically do it because I mean that would be you know yeah. you can't tax them. No, but, you can't tax them. You can, like. You, but the challenge is that right now we. This have, is Canada. They will try. Well, okay, fair <laughs> enough. But we, you know, we have technologies now that allow people to actively seek out other people with the same views as them, and then build foundations around those communities that doesn't let anything into them. Right. Yeah. That did not exist in the '80s. That did not exist in the '60s. Well, actually. It did at a smaller scale. At a much smaller scale. Like the part of the reason, this is where we get into my book, part of the reason why the satanic panic took off the way it did was because you had small communities of professionals who would meet regularly for conferences mm -hmm. where ideas around satanic ritual abuse and, and all of these kinds of theories would, would, would spread within these relatively closed professional groups and would then the, the professionals would leave their conferences, go back to their home communities and spread them within there. Mm -hmm. That was one of the chief agents of travel for this conspiracy. You're seeing that on social media happen at scale, right? That's, yeah. That's the difference, and that's what's extremely um, uh, disruptive about that. But the other thing I would say is that in the past, when you had moral panics like the satanic panic, it's, it's, it's my model for a lot of this stuff for obvious reasons, those, those moral panics would last years and years and years and then burn themselves out. What you're seeing now is a lot of moral panics and conspiracies lasting a couple of months and now burning themselves out, and then with mm. a higher degree of frequency, yeah. right? So... We're in a place of, of just radical experimentation where people are trying on alternative narrative theories. It's kind of what I call a lot of this stuff. Um, and it doesn't hold. It, it, it doesn't man manage to capture the mainstream in the way that it did previously, and it burns itself out at a much higher rate. Uh, so, I mean, are you I saying... That, I don't know if it's good or bad. I'm just saying it's, 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 it's not... I don't expect within 10 years that because of the collapse of mainstream media that we're all going to be, like, hailing Q. I don't think that's going to be where this goes. I, but, okay, surely the satanic, then I confess that I'm not deeply knowledgeable about the satanic oh, panic. But let me, oh, no, no. let yeah. me tell you all about it. But that was confined to a very small slice of the population. No, it wasn't. No. This is actually something that people, was is really interesting. This was mainstream. This was radically mainstream. This was mainstream in modern therapy. This was mainstream in media. This was absolutely mainstream in police um, departments all across North America and eventually I remember the world. in churches in the 90s. It was, Church, it was, was still kind of, it was is, still kind of, it was petering out, but yeah, it was still it was, there. May, this was mainstream in a religious space at the time, and it was also concurrent with the rise of evangelical Christianity as well. Mm. This was a, this was, this was not some like the satanic panic of the 80s and 90s was way more mainstream than QAnon is today. Interesting. 
way more mainstream. And there's some interesting reasons why that happened. Um, even there, there are even people today who are ostensibly mainstream people who are very, very convinced. In fact, you can make the argument that the satanic panic became QAnon. Right. Right. So this was not this was not a small thing. Oprah, Geraldo, they were all. It's true. This was yeah. on the front page of the Globe and Mail. This was this was. There's the whole thing people, about about uh, heavy metal and playing, highly playing the records backwards at, and... at the upper echelons of things like uh, psychological sciences here in Canada. Were firm proponents. When I was a kid, I had to. I had to keep my like Marilyn Manson CDs uh, <laughs> pretty pretty hidden. I guess the way it was. Uh, maybe we could switch it back a little bit to where we were mm, sorry, yeah. to beat journalism. <laughs> Right. Um, the regular grind of the news, watching city hall, watching the legislature. You know, you know. One reason, I think, uh, you know, you you were both talking about this that most of the new media tends to focus on analysis and opinion mm -hmm. on the news that's already out there is because beat journalism is so expensive. Uh, also, there's a limited market for it. There's a limited market, but uh, another is the cost as well. There's a mm -hmm. few things like our our news department, our news department is almost all full-time salary reporters. Our opinion side is one editor and then a bunch of contracted freelance writers. Um, news generally, for the most part, requires salaried full-time people, and mm -hmm. it's a, so it's a totally different economic model. What do you think beat journalism is going to look like ten years from now? If you know, let's just say. Um, you know, Rodriguez gets hit by a bus. Not that I would say that, but let's just say he gets hit by a bus. Let's say his bill gets hit by a bus and the bailouts get hit by a bus. Just it all dies and they have an epiphany and they say, no more bailouts, no more C18. We're just going to let the market go. Is, what does beat journalism look like in a decade? Regardless of the bailouts, this is the bailouts aren't actually going to dramatically shift the course of anyone's destiny here. We're talking about the bailouts. No, but they, 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 buy them they time, slow down they, the change. They slow down the change. They don't stop it. But let's just say that but stuff 10, ended. But we had 10, 10 years of years, growth. A lot of beat journalism is going to be replaced by AI. Not all of it, but a lot of it. So, you know, local city hall, city hall puts up its all a transcript of, its, of all of its meetings and subcommittee meetings and AI goes through it creates a story. This goes to back to a human editor. The human editor double checks for facts, tries to put anything in context. It pops up on the website. Now all of a sudden, um, a news star article that used to take hours and hours and hours to produce can be produced in 10 minutes. So, you know, weather stories. Humans don't are not going to be producing weather stories in 10 years. Sports. Sports. Humans are not going to be producing sports in 10 years. Is it going to replace all of journalism and all reporting? Absolutely not. AI can't do that. But AI yeah. can not, but AI can certainly will certainly replace you know day to day coverage of what's happening in Parliament. AI can replace day to day coverage of what's happening. Um, just anything that's automated, where the the text can be put online, AI can can do an adequate job of of, of covering and filling in that. Those Actually, gaps. it's already pretty much there. Where you can also have yeah. a a fake AI person who looks like a reporter, and you can mm -hmm. have them in a fake AI studio it's, and reading the news, looking like it was on CNN. They, they, and they their go, hair it's will not never, just the text now. Their hair will never go gray, so great. But um, no, I mean, it's not going to replace all journalism, and I don't see AI as being a threat to journalism, because let's be honest here, AI is not going to replace journalism jobs. The journalism jobs are already gone. AI is going to serve as a tool for human journalists, human editors to maximize massively increase their output and to build on and to build on I yes think one of the right. mm -hmm. one of the problems right now is we're still stuck in a mode where we're doing that we're trying to protect things that were done 
simply because they exist, right? Well, that, that job was there, we got to protect it. And to make journalism successful and thrive, it has to be not what have we done, but what should we do, right? What need is not being currently met by technology, by the market? And we don't need, you know, we don't need people to cover box scores in baseball. We have that already. We don't need people to, like Jen said, do the sort of TikTok of what happened in the legislature because AI can do that. But there are some things that technology definitely cannot or will not do. And those are the places that journalism should be going into. Yeah, exactly. um, and until we get that mindset, mindset shift away from how do we protect to how do we build, I think we're, we're going to be in this sort of, um, this sort of uh, purgatory. Yeah. yeah, maybe small little sidetrack, but I think it's relevant to this. Um, a question that we've been tackling here at the Western Standard is, you know, we are looking at how we integrate AI. What do you think are some of the guidelines a hmm. publication or newsroom should have around legitimate and illegitimate use of AI oh, in the yeah. newsroom? That's going to be a, such an interesting conversation in the next years. I don't think AI I don't is, is like exactly where it needs to be for us to do this, but it's so close that we need to start having that conversation. Yeah. I think disclosure is the first one. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. If this is not written by a human, I do think that you're until until AI becomes so normalized that everyone just sort of assumes that a lot of this stuff isn't being written by human. I do think that you need very proactive disclosure with people about it. Also, I do think that I wouldn't let the machines run wild without a human supervision or human editor like that. I think you still need to have somebody. I just rewatched the Terminator this weekend. So. <laughs> yeah, there you go. But I mean, I do think that you need if if they're if you're going to have an AI sort of recap the latest happenings at a city council meeting. You still need a human on the other side of that, double checking the quotes, making sure everything is correct. There's still going to be a, a fact checking process that stuff the stuff's going to need to go through. Um, and I think that you always need to ask yourself, you know, is this AI replacing humans or is this tool um, uh, making us more helping humans? That the tool shouldn't be an end in and of itself. I would say like the tool should be an aid to human productivity not a replacement for human creativity. That's if we're kind of assuming in this that AI is going to be used within publications, current and future mm -hmm. publications. But this could very easily take the form of, well, let's, let's say Google. Google's not allowed to do news in Canada anymore. Mm -hmm. Well, they might just say, we'll create our own news. Well, they're already there. I hope so. So their big, yeah. their big thing is they're tired of their search sending people off of their servers. Yeah. And so what they're going to do is when next time you Google, I need a recipe for such and such, rather than it sending you to allrecipes.com, they'll just have their AI serve up the recipe for you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you stay on their turf and you pay them your money that they are going to try to eat more of the pie. So, um, and, and I'm just picturing like, okay, so what so if not, we So it might see... not even be us using the AI. No. We might just get completely cut out and AI yeah, without any human supervision Well, because it'll be easier. I don't think the AI is there to be used without human supervision. I really don't. Not think... yet, but I, I mean, it I, could I, be there really could, soon. Could be, but, but I still think that you're going to have use for our skill sets. Let's just say even in an AI dominated space. We all hope so. But... Well, and I think it will send us ideally, up the value chain. There's a yeah, lot of things right. that journalists do right now and certainly used to do. You know, the glory days. There's a lot of pointless tasks that were being done inefficiently. Absolute grunt work. Grunt work. And, and now the machine will do it for us, and we get to focus our mental energies on analysis, on higher thinking, on, you know, on delivering value for the customer uh, in a way that the, you know, there's more than just the AI can do. I think it will push good journalists to a better place. Well, um, except the problem is that 
good journalists get their start on the grunt work. Yes. So if you get rid of all of mm. that need to do some of that grunt work stuff, I mean, my first job at the Toronto Star was listening to the radio room, mm. right? It was listening to police and the radio scanners, waiting for someone to die or waiting for a terrible thing to happen and then gathering information about it. You couldn't replicate that training now. And if we have a situation where AI is able to spot, do what radio rumors used to do, mm-hmm. firstly, you know, you're you're just losing opportunities for young journalists to get the training and the mentorship that we that we used to get. Now that being said, we've already lost it; it's already gone. So, where do you balance this? I don't know, but yeah. my my suspicion is that the real crisis or the next crisis after this crisis is going to be how do you train up a whole generation of journalists in an AI space where all of those mentorship and and training opportunities are now gone, and you're asking them to go from university to essentially to do to straight for straight into analysis or high level thinking journalism mm-hmm. before they've had the 10 year apprenticeship totally. that they actually need to do that. I get that and I understand it, but I, I ha- keep on having this meme in my head that keeps recurring when you're talking about this. And it's, you know, we all remember our, you know, grade four math teacher when we complain about lo- learning our multiplication table saying, well, you're not always going to have a calculator in your pocket. God damn, they were wrong. <laughs> like, like, yeah, it's nice if you know your times tables, but it's kind of useless now because we all have a super calculator in our pocket that could put a man on Mars. So maybe it'll be the equivalent of that. Maybe it's just like this is just something we don't even really need to worry about anymore, and they're just going to go straight to calculus with their weird graphing calculator. Or maybe Western civilization collapses and we all have to go back to some kind of uh, repeat of the local grain news. I mean, like I said, I'm I'm not really worried about my ability to function in the future world. I just sort of think that it's not going to look like it was in the past. And being wedded to the way it was yeah. is a pretty good way to sort of uh, tip the scales in the wrong direction. I mean, I, you know, I... I'm an optimist, so I'm a technological optimist. But um, you know, to me, the, the interesting premise with AI, the thing that AI forces us to confront as journalists is how do we be trusted? How can how can we demonstrate and earn trust from the people who use our services? And I think the problem with journalism is for a long time we've taken that for granted. We show up assuming we're trusted, right? You walk into the building, it has the letter, you know, it has the masthead, and you're like, I'm trusted, and you haven't had to work for it. And I think the new environment that we're in, you have to prove that you're trustable. Uh, You can't make mistakes. Uh, You have to be accountable when you are or when you do. And I think that has to be sort of a defining question when when media companies roll out AI is, how does this impact our trust? How does this, does it increase or decrease the amount that our our users, our supporters, our customers trust us? And I'm, I'm still not sure that that thought is as prominent as it should be. I think that's true if we're talking about kind of, you know, catch-all publications that people on both sides of the divide used to be able to read at the same time and more or less have an agreement on facts on. Uh, This is probably the the wrong term for it, but perhaps it's, we're heading towards kind of a return of the yellow press. Maybe not as extreme, not as explicitly partisan, but if nothing else, a more tribal press where, well, Western Standard readers trust the Western Standard, but they don't trust the National Observer, mm-hmm. National Observer okay. readers let's, trust you guys, but won't trust anything from us. The yellow press was the norm for most of the history of the press. Mm-hmm. The whole period where we all have shared narratives and a shared media conversation is actually relatively recent. Mm-hmm. Prior to this, 
the more norm thing was like you had your press, you had your ideological newspaper that you went to and you relied on and your writers and your readers to tell Before you about pamphlets. the day. You had pamphlets and all that kind of thing. So like the the, the tribal and, and highly siloed um, media environment it is actually the norm for society. It just hasn't been the norm in our lifetimes. And that's what the shift that we're getting used to. But I'm also wondering if the future, going back to Google, if the future is Google creating its own news hub in every community, right, mm -hmm. using AI, and maybe they have a handful of journalist editors in every region helping to direct news, generation of news stories, doing the weather, doing the sports, doing the local town meetings, doing the local blah, 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 blah. Then that becomes the shared thing. Everybody has essentially the same news hub. Mm -hmm. And then you have your, your Western standards, your nationals. or more interesting in-depth stuff or the good writing, right? I mean, AI, on AI can do good writing, which is not as fun, now is it? So what if what if that's that's how we reestablish a kind of shared narrative is through AI-generated news hubs, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not saying that's the way it's going to be. I'm just saying that that could be one way this picture rolls out. I think the danger there is always in, if there's a central sort of one publication or one company that's running things, what happens, the, the, the control of that becomes very, very valuable As, and very, very contestable. Well, we already saw that Absolutely. with social media trying to grapple with regulating what could mm -hmm. be posted on it during COVID because mm -hmm. there was some disinformation, but a lot of times, as it would turn out, things weren't disinformation if we're talking like like uh, leaks from the Wuhan lab. That stuff was flagged as fake news, turned out not to be. And so social media plot, for, you know, especially, you know, Google, YouTube, sorry, no, uh, Facebook and YouTube would highly regulate what was allowed and ban you if not. But that, that was regulating who could post onto it. Now it just might be, it could get more extreme to that if, if the this, common narrative is just kind of a Google news. But this is, but this is, the, this is exactly the same conversation we've been having for the last, what, however many decades with the consolidation of news under post media, yeah. right? I mean, yes, when you have one entity controlling the majority of the content, you run into these problems. And this is why you need to have strong antitrust conversations. Maybe the Google News Hub is going to be different from the... I don't know how that's going to work out. I'm, I'm sure that eventually someone's going to go after Google for antitrust stuff in this Canada, for its, in, in Canada. This will not prevent that. Or potentially it's another company. It's another company doing the, the equivalent of this, right? Mm -hmm. So... Mm. Actually, part of the problem, I think, is you know C18 is going after Google and Facebook all the wrong way. I think there is probably a strong case for antitrust against both of these yeah, companies. Absolutely. But I'm not sure that can happen in Canada. I think that's, that, that is. Got to come from the United States. Yeah. There's no track record of being able to consolidate. Well, we love industry. monopolies as we long as they're monopolies. Canadian monopolies. Exactly. I mean, like that's, that's how the media got into this situation in the first place, right? I heard someone describe us as the test case on C18 for the Americans. And I thought, that seems backwards. Why would we want to be their test case? That seems like a good way to end up as, as roadkill. Road yeah. Um, and that's yeah, We're going to be the first guy on the beach here. And we don't even know where we're charging. Yeah, it does not, uh, that's not a good place to be. Nope. No. All right, uh, maybe last word to you, Jen. I don't have any more words. What else do I have to say? Come on. <laughs> well, it was all very eloquent. Uh, well, uh, maybe before we wrap up, uh, where can people learn more and uh, support the line? Theline.substack.com. .com? .com. Yeah, that's right. There you go. We'll, we'll show up. You'll find us.
Great. Well, I guess that's a wrap for our first attempt at this. We're going to try and find something where maybe Max and I are a little less agreement, a, a little less agreement than this, because I think and, both, we both have a I shared will, stake. And, and I will be there. It'll be, it'll be great. Don't you have at it. Have fun. Have fun, boys. <laughs> and I, I'll try and avoid having my John Stewart moment where I explain how another crossfire is bad for democracy, and you guys are bad for democracy, and you should not do this. We probably are bad for democracy, but it's just so much fun. Uh, what do you do? We're both going to get yelled at in our respective silos for this. So uh, you know, we're not allowed. So we're not supposed to be talking to one another. Yeah. All right. Well, Jen, thank you for uh, being our first guest. And Max, it was a slice. All right. Until next time. Thank you very much for joining us on our very first episode of Fawcett versus Fildebrandt. Thank you very much and God bless.